Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. TMA has a long, proud history of promoting patient rights, advocating for physicians, and providing real solutions for your practice. We can accomplish so much when we unite in one voice. Call the TMA Knowledge Center at 1-800-880-7955 or visit TexMed.org to find out how you can join or renew your membership today. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash CME T-O-G-O, to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Policies and standards at the Texas Medical Association, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, and the American Medical Association require that speakers and planners for continuing medical education activities disclose any relevant financial relationship they may have with commercial entities whose products, devices, or services may be discussed in the context at the CME activity. The planners and speakers for this program have nothing to disclose. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation, including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hello, I'm Cheryl Krogak, and I produce the TMA Practice Well podcast and manage TMA's Education Center, where we strive to help physicians and their practice thrive. In this episode, we continue with the Ask the Expert series, a program that brings physicians direct access to professional experts who can answer questions on legal, practice management, advocacy, and regulatory topics. Our expert guests are Jeff Drummond, partner at Jackson Walker Dallas, Terry Diebler, TMA Practice Management Consultant, and Heather Betridge, TMA Associate Vice President of Practice Management Services. And now the host for today's episode, Heather Betridge. Thank you for everyone for joining us today. Um, let's start with what is a policies and procedures manual and why it should be important to physicians. 
Well, payers actually require you to have an updated policies and procedures manual that's readily available and accessible to your staff, meaning you should have it either bound in paper format or an electronic version available on a common drive on your practice's computer network for staff to access. If you've ever experienced a payer site visit, one of their requirements is that they see your PMP manual. So be sure that your staff knows exactly where it is and that it's fully customized to your practice. It shouldn't be sitting shrink-wrapped on your shelf. Your customization should be done with the advice of your practice's attorney who should review the customized policies prior to implementation. Jeff, do you have anything to add on this? Sure, I would say that it's additionally, you wanna address in the policies and procedures, you wanna address the legal requirements because you also have a requirement if you do Medicare, Medicaid, uh, you have to have a compliance plan as well. So that should be baked into your policies and procedures as well. Your policies and procedures basically give you an operational roadmap for the practice and how you run things, but it, it also allows you to sort of document the fact that you do things the right way. And the same way that you have to have uh, medical records to prove that something happened, the sort of if it's not in the record, it never happened sort of you know rule. Uh, the same goes with your policies and procedures that you, you can't say, well, we've been doing things the right way. We We've been complying with HIPAA. We've been complying with all these various requirements that the payers have or sort of your general, you know, operational requirements without having the paperwork to show that you to show it and to show that everybody's on the same page and all of your employees are operating on the same page. So I think for those reasons, it's really important uh, not not shrink wrapped somewhere. Uh, the dusty three ring binder is sort of a, you know, if you can judge it by archeologically by like the layers of dust on it or how far <laughs> it's buried on your desk, that's not a good sign. Uh, but so your policies and procedures you know, are important because they, they, they're the evidence that you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Let's clarify real quickly, too, because we get a lot of questions about the differences. So a, a policies and procedures manual is not the same resource as an employee handbook. Right. So employee handbooks are very specific to staff and their employment at the practice. So, for example, your your handbook outlines your onboarding process, um, dress codes, time off recruitment, um, annual performance review processes, things like that. And the policies and procedures manuals, those establish the, the operating policies and procedures of the practice and clearly communicate expectations and the requirements for staff when performing you know, various tasks of their job responsibilities. With, with that being said, Terry, what information should be included in your PMP manual? Well, it should cover a multitude of topics, but by no means will it capture every situation that might arise in the practice. But at a minimum, it should include broad categories for human resource management, the front desk, the business or billing office, general practice management, um, medical records management, office safety and clinical operations, and of course, compliance. And thoroughly documented processes for every office procedure should be included, such as a script for appointment scheduling, scheduling protocols, how to balance the day's receipts and other billing and collection processes. The manual should also include a fraud and abuse compliance plan, OSHA and HIPAA policies. Copies of job descriptions for each position in the practice should also be included. Now, because no two medical practices are exactly the same, don't think that just because you purchased a PMP manual from somewhere 
that you're good to go because not all the policies and forms will be applicable to your practice as written. And in fact, they may not apply at all. So be sure that the manual is fully customized to your practices, philosophy, operations, and environment, because you'll be held accountable for all the policies in your manual, even if certain policies do not apply. And if payers discover this, you may be at risk for losing your contract with them. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's pause here for a moment to address a few questions. Um, we did have a handful of questions emailed. Um, so let's start with those. Let's see. A good one to start with, a high-level question. Terry, what's the difference between a policy and procedure? They're always talked about together and seem like one of the same thing. Policies are the set of general guidelines that outline the practice's plan for addressing certain issues that occur within the practice. Procedures are the actual steps taken in order to appropriately adhere to the policy. It's the how. So they really are two different things, but they work hand in hand. Jeff, anything to add on that one? One thing that I would, I kind of want to pick up on what Terry said, um, the customization of your policies and procedures. And I want to sort of like tag onto that and sort of finish that out is that that is, that's extremely important. And it's one of the, if you are subject to either a payer audit, or for example, you have a HIPAA breach and you have a HIPAA uh, complaint and you're required to provide information to OCR, then if your HIPAA policies and procedures say, you know, these are the policies of insert company name here, they're not going to think that you're very, that you were, were really compliant with it. And additionally, there are every policy and procedure, all policies and procedures will have stuff that won't be applicable to you. Now, the difference between a policy and a procedure, I think Terry was exactly right that the policy is sort of the general rule and the procedure is how you implement it. I think that over the course of time, it's kind of like fraud and abuse becomes one thing. It's like it's fraud, there's fraud and there's abuse, but then there's fraud and abuse. Policies and procedures, we sort of look at them the same way. If your policies and procedures aren't set up in a way where you distinguish or separate out the policy part from the procedure part, that's okay. It's still, you. what you want is to address the issue and however you do it is really fine. Exactly, yeah. Another question is, um, can we charge for, can we charge a fee for missed appointments or no-shows? Generally speaking, you can make no-show fees part of your billing policies, but no, you can't charge no-show fees for Medicaid patients and commercial plans might have their own restrictions based on your contract with them. Yeah. Let's see, keeping our PMP manual up to date is a never-ending, tedious and time-consuming task. Who should be assigned this responsibility and realistically, how frequently should updates be incorporated? Whoever you like least in the practice. (laughs) Typically, the practice manager is responsible for incorporating new policies and procedures and updating the existing policies and procedures. But he she should get input from each department and the physicians. And at a minimum, your manual should be updated at least annually or when changes are agreed upon, accepted, and implemented as new policy and processes moving forward. The reason for this is to help ensure that staff are made aware of the new policy or update and that they know they'll be held accountable for any behavior or actions related to the new policy or change. How often do you do uh, compliance training? That's sort of a good sort of, if you do compliance training every year, which most people seem to do, that should be the time you start thinking about policies and procedures. Because when you're doing compliance training, you'll come up with things that, oh, 
wait a minute, our policies say this, that's not really working very well. It's time to change it. it. It allows you to sort of have that trigger that automatically happens. You don't have to do it every year, but if you do it on a regular basis, you can tag the policies and procedures onto whatever else you do on a regular basis. And that way, you know, it gets taken care of. Mm-hmm. Great idea. Yep. Let's see, Jeff, here's a, a two-part question right up your alley and, and actually very appropriate to today's current environment. Should our practice have a policy in which we require employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19? And then two, what do you suggest our policy be with regards to HIPAA and responding to patients who ask about employees' COVID-19 vaccination status? Okay, so the first question I have to tread very carefully because as a lawyer, there's not a real good answer here. Generally speaking, and this kind of goes back, and this is, I I teach a health law class at UTD, and this has, there's a lot of sort of these types of things that we we spend hours discussing, but there's a lot of support, especially in the healthcare space, for a private employer to require uh, vaccinations. And I think that Although they're there, you know, should you have exemptions? Should you have a religious exemption or a uh, an ADA type exemption? If somebody has a disability that prevents them from getting a vaccine, that may be sufficient. It's hard to say definitively as to whether you can or can't. You have a lot more flexibility to impose one in the healthcare space because it directly relates to the practice. Now, it would be a little harder to impose a vaccine uh, mandate on. A, on employees who don't deal with employees who work entirely from home or don't deal with patient care where there's less of a specific link to health in what they're doing. Clinicians and people who are in the practice, it's a lot easier to impose. But again, it's there's no 100% yes, no right answer there, but that's possible. The second question, if, uh, if patients are asking about your employees and whether they're vaccinated and you're concerned about whether you can talk about your employees' Uh, vaccination status, their vaccination status, even if they get the vaccine at your office, their vaccination status is part of their employment information. Employment records are not PHI, so they're not protected by HIPAA, even though it contains some of the same information. So generally speaking, that information would not be uh, PHI if the reason why you have it is because you have a policy to require or not require employees to have a vaccine or have a requirement that they report whether they have had a vaccine. That makes it an employment record. If you, as a practice, you gave out the vaccines to the people in your office, but there's no employment requirement one way or the other, either to have it or to report it to the practice, then the only way the practice would know it is by looking at the actual medical records rather than the employment records. So if you look at that distinction there, and if the patients are asking, are your employees vaccinated and you have a rule that you have to be vaccinated or if you're not, you have to test every day or whatever, whatever your rule is, you can use the information that relates to what your employment rules are because that's an employment record. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, that's great information. You know, one of the things we hear in in practice consulting is the PMP manual is quite large and it can be overwhelming. So we're often asked what guidance we can provide for optimizing a practice's PMP manual, particularly um, with regards to new employees. 
Well, when you bring on a new employee, they have a lot of paperwork to fill out, but the PMP manual is a great guide for initial training of new staff. So all staff should be trained consistently on how to handle day-to-day tasks and how to proceed in specific situations and how to provide quality care. Um, Staff should always review the manual, which is why you want to have it accessible um, and new hire orientation. They should sign an acknowledgement that they have been given um, and read and understand and agree with policies and procedures in the manual. And that acknowledgement form should be kept in their personnel file. And really, it's a win-win in that these written policies will help eliminate word-of-mouth training, which often results in old habits or incorrect ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see. Um, what guidance can you give for a policy pertaining to when the relatives of a deceased patient request access to the deceased patient's medical records? Hmm. Okay, so this is this has a real HIPAA component to it, uh, and I'm assuming that the, that the patient has not been deceased more than 50 years, because if they've been deceased more than 50 years, then uh, then their their medical information is no longer PHI. That's just a sort of a definitional thing, and that was changed in uh, in, in HIPAA a few years back to allow for researchers to have better access to information. They figure if you're once you're dead 50 years, your need for privacy is somewhat diminished. But with regard to people who are more recently deceased, they have also revised HIPAA recently uh, to allow a little bit more flexibility than what was originally in HIPAA. HIPAA allows a personal representative to stand in the shoes of the patient. Well, let me step back. HIPAA allows a patient to have access to their records, basically full access. They should have the right to get everything. And we've seen recently with the uh, data blocking rules that under the... uh, 21st Century Cares Act, the new data blocking rules basically require you to be able to disclose everything in an EMR to the patient, including case notes that might otherwise be things you wouldn't necessarily think the patient would have access to. Patients have full access to their PHI or should have full access to their PHI. And another kind of side trail here is our OCR, the Enforcement Agency for HIPAA, is on a two-year-long kick of going after people for failing to provide access to patient records. Then the last week, they announced a 20th settlement agreement with a medical provider or a a health plan that failed to provide patients with access to their information. So OCR is after access issues. So you have to give the patient access. Patient has a right to access. When they're deceased, who has a right to access on their behalf? HIPAA has baked in this concept of a personal representative who is somebody who stands in the shoes of the patient. So if the personal representative asks, it's as if the patient asks. Think of a parent asking on behalf of a minor child. Uh, the parent is the personal representative, stands in the shoes. The parent says, I want access to my child's medical record. It's as if the child uh, requested it. For a deceased patient, the person who is the executor of the estate, executor or administrator of the estate, or somebody who has been granted letters testamentary. That in Texas, that's the way in which an estate that is being probated, not administered, but probated, uh, that's how the executor gets their authority is through what's called letters testamentary. Those will come from the court and will say, yes, this person is now the representative of the estate. HIPAA will treat that person as the personal representative as well. So that's a hard rule. 
if it, if the person is the executor of the estate, they are the they are the the, the deceased party as for HIPAA purposes. So you have to give them that. You don't need anything more than proof that they're the executor. It gets trickier when you're dealing with people who are either not the executor or a recently deceased patient where they haven't yet taken the will to court or there's not a will and they haven't gone to court yet. In those cases, HIPAA allows you to to treat a family member or somebody who's a close friend or family member of the deceased who was involved in the deceased's care to basically have nearly the same rights to access as the as the former patient, the deceased patient. Uh, you have to make a professional determination that that person was that involved in the care. And so it's partly on the practice to make that determination and partly on, uh, on the recipient. The practice can't ask the recipient to sign a document. That's what I would suggest is that you have some sort of a document that says that I am involved in winding up the estate. I have need for this information somehow so that you can be confident that this person is somebody who stands and you know, represents the patient. If they've been active in the practice and they've been active with the patient, for example, you have an elderly patient who uh, has two children, one of which will bring the patient to uh, appointments, but sits in the waiting room and isn't involved. The other one who brings the patient to appointments sits in the exam room, explains things, and is sort of an intermediary. That second person is much more likely to be the one who you can trust to be you know, representing the patient than the first one. So if you know that this was somebody who was involved in the care, then you can fairly easily make that determination. If it's not, you have a patient who really took care of themselves and you don't know who the right person is, you want some sort of documentation from the family member that shows that they are, you know, they were involved and that they are the person who's helping with winding up the estate or whatever. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how I would how I would lay that out. Okay, great. You know, that brings up another question that we've received um, many times over the years, and that has to do specific to say OB/GYNs, where you have a pregnant patient and. The, the advice historically has been to maintain that medical record until the, the baby is 21. Mm-hmm. Is that still the advice, Jeff? I don't know whether I have, I could give you a hard and fast opinion on that at this point, because I'd have to sort of see whether, whether, yeah, whether the law has changed. Um, and generally speaking, well, the problem with that, particularly for OBGYNs is that you're only the provider for the parent. You're not the provider for the child. Right. Uh, and so in that case, you really shouldn't have to. I'm not sure how the law imposes that legal requirement on because there's not a provider-patient relationship with the fetus. So generally speaking, I think that would be harder to, uh, harder to impose. I think it's done more sort of as a courtesy and as a practice operational thing, because it, it could help out the child later on to have that information, but I don't think it could be a, a legally binding requirement. I mean, it's sort of, I don't want to give legal advice kind of on the fly like that without yeah. having you know, spent a little more time digging into it. But generally speaking, you have to have that physician-patient relationship in place for uh, a legal obligation to be imposed. That being said, if you're treating the mother and you're going to 
you know, not keep information that would be helpful to the mother's child. Generally speaking, most mothers are really have a very like close attachment to their children in my experience. So from a, from a uh, sort of a, a patient, you know, keeping your patients happy standpoint, that may be something that you would want to consider as well. Whether you have a legal obligation or not, you may want to consider that your patients will want you to have that information for them. Right. Yeah. Great. Heather, I had a good question from a member's office manager recently. She asked that you have the staff review your policies and procedures yearly and document the review. I'm of the opinion that they don't need to review it annually, but they definitely need to review it anytime there's an update or a change. And then um, definitely sign off on it at orientation or initial training, showing that they've received a copy of it, that they've read through it, and that they've had their questions answered. Jeff, anything to add? I think that when you make changes to your policies also, if you do it in a what you use, for example, with Word, with Microsoft Word, you can make change if you can make changes with track changes on. Okay. So that and that's something that's fairly easy to show the staff. I think that that on your on annual basis, having the staff say sort of at least glance through the table of contents of the uh, policies and procedures or sort of flip through their sections and specifically look at anything that has changed within the last since the last time they looked through it. It's easy enough then to say, I know what's in here. All I have to do is look for the redlining. Uh, and so that, I think, makes it pretty easy to, to, to downstream. And again, you can kind of check that off as a everybody is now you're now responsible when we asked you every April, we ask you, have you looked at it? And you tell us every April you do. And then you know, in the future, you you don't do something that's clearly outlined in the policies yeah, we can say, hey, why didn't you do it this way? You said that you reviewed it every year. How come you never saw it over the last 20 years you've been working here? I think that having that uh, trigger is is useful from a, uh, it's useful because it keeps people in compliance. Good. But it's also useful if you've got employees that are not kind of doing stuff the way they ought to. It's sort of, allow, it gives you some proof that they are, you know, they need to improve. I know we're running up on our, our time here. So Terry, what are, what are three top takeaways or, or tips for a practice who may be writing new policies and procedures, or maybe they already have PMPs, but they're from 20 years ago and they want to freshen them up and standardize them? Well, first name your policies what they are. You want it to be searchable and recognizable. You want it to be able to save time if staff are want to quickly look up a policy. The second thing is write your policies in an active voice and stay away from words like highest, safest, best, because these words can sometimes be perceived to mean a guarantee of a certain outcome. So avoid using statements like to ensure or to prevent, eliminate, and instead use phrases like to promote, to help lessen the opportunity of, and so on. And number three, have the date that each policy went into effect, as well as the subsequent review dates and modification dates within the body of the policy. Typically, it's at the end of the policy. Um, you'll find that this is particularly helpful when you're holding staff accountable for compliance, because if a policy was dated at one time and that changed, you want to make sure that you have the date there. And I'd add in, add in two things, one on number one and one on number three, with regard to having the dates in uh, when they've been uh, uh, adopted. I would also put who's responsible, who owns the policy 
Who's responsible for the mm-hmm. politics? Not a person, but a, but an office. Is this a practice manager's job? Is this a billing manager's job? Is this the, if it's a large practice, if it's the, the head of the nursing staff, whose job is it to be responsible for that policy? Because then you have some accountability for if the policies get way too far behind the times and who should who's the one who should have ownership of that to update it. Uh, And then one of the first things that Terry said about naming your policies, and I think that's a great idea. I think a really good table of contents is really helpful because it makes it easier for you to go in and access stuff. It's not searchable, but it allows your people operating in the practice to know sort of what the practice was thinking when it structured its operational guidelines. And so you can see, oh, we, we, we put that in here because that means that that's important for this group of people. And mm-hmm. if I'm involved in one section of the practice, I can look through the table of contents and say, some of these things are not applicable to me at all. And so I can kind of like skim over those. I don't need to focus much on those, but I really do need to focus on these other ones. And so that I think is also really, uh, really useful. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. We're up on our time here. Thank you for everyone for joining us today. Thank you, Heather, Terry, and Jeff. Lots of helpful guidance. To our listeners, we hope you found this episode beneficial. You can find more practical programs and claim CME for today's episode in the TMA Education Center. A link is provided in the episode description. To receive more helpful tips, remember to like and follow the TMA Practice Well podcast. Until next time, stay well.